Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, a product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stancil. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. To wrap up our series on quantifying and responding to soil spatial variability, we are joined by Dr. John Fulton, a professor in the Department of Food, Agricultural, and Biological Engineering at The Ohio State University. John's research and extension specialties are in digital agriculture, data analytics, machinery automation, and application equipment. Our discussion today will center around how we go from maps to variable rate applications, and then how these applications are executed in the field using modern machinery technologies. Some aspects of this are considerations of the products applied, the algorithms used to go from measurements to target rates, and the accuracy of prescription execution with contemporary application technologies. This episode will touch on elements of all the previous episodes in this series, so if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to those yet, I highly encourage you to do so. So with that introduction out of the way, there is a lot to learn in this episode, so here we go with our interview featuring Dr. John Bolton. Jackson, Samantha, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's always good to interact with the folks at Nebraska. Uh, I compliment what you guys do. And it's kind of a, a two-way street. We, we've talked to a lot of folks out that way. And, they, and, and that's a good way of learning, but also challenging yourself to improve things. And, and you know, this is one thing, is, is getting people together and talking about hot topics or important topics. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So this episode with you is wrapping up our series on quantifying and responding to soil variability. So we've had the pleasure of talking about soil sampling, on-the-go soil mapping, and data processes that turn these measurements into maps. Now let's talk about how we're going to apply all of this. So the fertilizer side. What fertilizer applications should be informed by measurements of soil spatial variability and why? Well, I think... As we stand today, for sure, phosphorus and potassium and micros um, are going to have to be connected to, to precision soil sampling, okay, and whatever strategy or approach the, the grower decides or the service provider offers to that grower. So that that's for sure um, all connected up. You know, I think the challenge is, and as as we all know, it is is how do we deal with nitrogen and, and things like corn and wheat, uh, in particular through the Midwest, um, and that's a little bit more challenging, and, and just because of the complexity of, of the nitrogen nitrogen cycle and, and our ability to uh, sense uh, or identify what we think is profitable out there in the field and, and matching that all up. Uh, but from a precision soil sampling, no doubt, um, nutrients, macros and micros and, and lime is definitely, and I encourage growers, even small growers that haven't tried to do some kind of precision soil sampling to pick a field or two and, and do that. I think there's a lot of lot of things today that we've unraveled or at least understood that precision soil sampling followed by verberate, there's, a, there's an advantage there, not only profitably, but from an environmental perspective too, when we think about phosphorus. What exactly do you think some of those profit benefits might be? Can you can you kind of quantify the profit benefits and potential environmental benefits that you're, you're maybe seeing in Ohio? 
You bet. So I, I tell you first, our research would suggest on average, and, and again, this is a very broad average that a grower is going to be able to save 7% on their fertilizer bill. And, and when I say fertilizer, we're talking about P and K. Uh, lime is a separate separate piece in terms of that equation and profitability. That's no doubt. I think we've proved that verberate lime is profitable, but, but from a fertility perspective, P and K, we can save on average 7%. Now, you know, if a grower goes out and maybe hasn't precision sampled and all of a sudden finds what we call or what I describe as hot spots that we have to have some corrective measures, that bill may go up first. But, you know, over that, whatever your cycle is, three or four years, two years in your sampling cycle, in, in six to 10 years, basically, you're going to get at a maintenance range. And when you're at that maintenance range, on average, you're going to be saving 7%. That may be more for some farmers, but I don't want to leave the conversation and saying, hey, right out of the gate, you're going to find savings because there could be areas that you're just going to have to make some corrective measures and, and kind of throw the potash in particular, what we find a lot of times, we're going to have to throw some potash out. That's really going to see some benefit on our soybean crops and the um, yields to soybeans. And then on the phosphorus side, uh, just again, trying to get the maintenance levels across that field. On an environmental perspective, what I would tell you, if we're matching soil needs and keeping ourselves below the critical level in a maintenance range, opportunity for there to be offsite transport of phosphorus is going to be minimized when we're doing verberate versus a fixed rate. Okay. Because one, maybe a very simple example is if I'm doing fixed rate phosphorus and I continue to do that, and maybe there's some history of putting manure, I may have some real high IP test levels. And we're, a lot of times those are on the borders or on a one side of the field, just again, because of history of what we've been, we've applied to a field. But it's in those, if I had a P, you know, I'm going to have loss. The soil is like a sponge, right? If the, if, if the sponge is full and I add another drop of water, that drop of water is either going to have to be absorbed and then put out the other side with that sponge, or it's going to just run off of the sponge. So with that in mind, it's kind of similar with phosphorus. I just think with matching your phosphorus to your, and getting yourself into the maintenance range, the, the opportunities for loss in the system is much less, much greater, much less, however you want to put that, uh, than, than just doing a fixed rate type approach across fields. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. I think that's really easily tangible for people out there to understand. I think it's great that you have taken the time to put some numbers to that profitability. Um, looking at the average across the state, that's really cool to see. Okay, so does the type of fertilizer being applied, so if whether the grower can apply manure versus dry spreading urea or MAP, change whether the application should be spatially varied? So are some fertilizers better to spatially vary than others? I don't know if I would say it's better necessarily. Um, Samantha, I, what I would say is in general, source isn't as doesn't matter as much when talking about inorganics. So whether I use urea or 28, um, you know, and granted, as long as you have the units that are there when the plant needs them, it does, the source doesn't matter. Same for phosphorus and, and, and potassium. Um, what I would say is that there are some nutrients probably 
easier to verberate than others today. Um, and probably my easiest example or simplest example would be manures are a little bit more challenging. Sure, we can do it, but it's a little bit more costly to implement and fully um, uh, execute today. But when we look at 28%, we look at urea as an example as nitrogen sources. We look at MAP, at least here, that's our primary phosphorus source, dry. And we look at potash. Those are, are systems and we have the equipment to, to be effectively to, to apply them out uh, across crop fields. Uh, but manures, I would tell you, it's a little more challenging, uh, especially on the liquid side and even on the dry side. It's more challenging to effectively deliver manures as we do some of these inorganic fertilizers. So I know there's lots of different methodologies behind it, but can you describe to us the process by which you would convert a soil property or a nutrient map and convert it to a spatially variable prescription application? Um, how you would recommend that to farmers? So I'm going to tell you two, two approaches that are, the first one is pretty common and, and I think we all do it. And then the second one is, is really, um, when I think across the U.S., Midwest in particular, is becoming probably the, the I don't want to say norm, but highly adopted way of doing precision um, fertility management. Uh, so the first one, of course, is what we talked about. You either grid a zone sample, uh, you send those to the lab, and then you use your university recommendations or what the university mentions as their recommendations to convert those soil sample results into uh, an applied amount of whatever source that you've chosen to create those prescriptions. Uh, most softwares, if not all precision egg softwares today, um, I don't want to say it's automated, within three to four steps, you can go from sampling to having a prescription done on a field today. Uh, we've become, as an industry, much more efficient. Um, I don't know if people are interested. I'd tell you we're probably somewhere between 60 to 70% more efficient with time today going back, you know, 15 years, there was a lot of steps. I mean, eight to 20 steps to go from sampling or creating points to sampling the points or zones to sending that off, getting that data back. That was like, like depending on this program, a 12 to 20 step process. <laughs> Today, most of the software packages that, that handle this in terms of not only creating points or zones and handling it, you're, you can get down to three to four manual steps. So just think about the efficiencies that's brought to the industry in terms of just creating prescription maps for farmers today and accuracy of that, in my opinion, too. Because every time we automate, make sure that's accurate, we're taking a, an error source out of it. The second method today is, and becoming fairly common across the Midwest, uh, farmers are generally sampling every other year or every three years, it seems like, in a lot of cases, okay? And, and so it's the same process, but it's becoming more of a check. Have I moved my soil fertility? And if I have, how much? And kind of learning from that. But we're also blending in those off years using yield maps for those cases where we're in a maintenance range of supplying back what we've taken off of that field, whether it's a two or three year rotation. So whatever I take off, in a lot of cases, we'll use, use a corn, soybean. What I took off with my corn, what I took off with my soybeans, went from a 
P and K and micro perspective, my prescription map just gets converted basically as a yield map back to a, a removal map and ultimately a, a, prescript, a prescription map. So I don't know if that's answering the full question, but those have become the two common ways, kind of the basic and normal approach. And then this kind of modified approach where yield maps are becoming such a critical data layer to fill in those off years where we're not sampling. Yeah, I think that answers the question. You know, it's it's, it's basically which which algorithm do you want to use? Do you want to use the back calculations from the yield or do you want to use those university recs based on the soil tests to get back to, to what you need to do? Yeah, and, and it's both, right? We don't want to over-fertilize, but at the same time, we want to use the university recommendations because that plays into this environmental piece too. Let's not forget that. When, when groups look inside from the outside in, they want to see standards and they want to understand the standards. Of course, university recommendations become those standards. And so when we can state that or a farmer states that, that's going to, in my opinion, will help out on that environmental discussion and the sustainability discussion at the same time, because you can point to I am following those standards. Would you like to put a plug in here for collecting good quality yield data to help with these <laughs> recommendations? <laughs> Well, um, you know, yield data is such the critical data layer, right? At the end of the day, you know, I always talk about there's two primary data layers, and then we can talk about second or secondary letter. But yield year in and year out is one of those primary data layers that becomes so important if your farm is utilizing precision ag or precision ag services. And so if it is, is that important, um being a, a, a good combine or harvester operator in conjunction with a technology operator becomes crucial to get quality data out. So if I'm a grower and I'm looking at trying to use the data layer to put into my fertility planning um, and, and rec process, then I need to know what those low yielding areas are to those high yielding areas as well, relatively, to, to be effective in using that yield data. So I don't know if I've got anything great other than calibrating and paying attention and doing some checks, especially as conditions. Moisture within the crops change, test weights change. You need to be checking your calibration. I would say at least two points on, on test weight. Uh, and so I, those are just general things to, to think about as you go through the, the season and just doing some checks to make sure things aren't uh, calibrated. Seems like you and Dr. Luck are on the same page there, that's for sure. <laughs> we'll say we've had some discussions. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about using these university algorithms to create uh, nutrient prescriptions. Uh, we've talked about, you know, basically um, using your, your yield maps to create these nutrient prescriptions. Are there any newer processes or algorithms that some of these private companies like, say, a climate corporation or somebody like that is uh, using that may not match these university recs or, you know, just accounting for our uptake of our, our previous crop uh, that are gaining some traction out there for growers? Well, the, the obvious ones would be the nitrogen tools that and there's four of them out there. You know, I, I think there's some validity in those those tools to help with nitrogen management. Uh, when we talk about site-specific, meaning per-field type analysis, it can be challenging. Uh, I think they can give you some suggestions and, and help you explain some things, but ultimately it's going to be yourself or the consultant tying 
rates to zones to, to make that happen on the nitrogen side. Though, though they've made a lot of progress. I, I don't want to discount those nitrogen tools. On the PK side, I really haven't seen, other than maybe some new technology coming down the road, uh, nothing today commercially that's really changed, uh, dramatically changed what we're seeing from from our from macros and, and micros in terms of how we manage and do that on a variable rate. You know, we've automated or beginning to automate the sampling process out in the field. We're seeing that grow. But in terms of the, the algorithms, I think you're asking, Jackson, mm-hmm. I I don't I haven't seen a lot of lot of movement on that part. One thing I would add to the discussion or, or at least the thought around this discussion is we're starting to see some companies get pretty significant volume of samples and information about fields built into their databases. So uh, I know a few people are trying to begin to explore how to tap into that knowledge, those data, and maybe think about the PNK in particular and micros, but um, haven't seen any results here yet. That, that how do we how do we take some of those pretty significant databases that, that have been built over the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, and, and extract new knowledge about how we may or think about doing phosphorus and potassium? That does make me think. Um, I did see some research come out of Corteva, the people that have like put their soil samples into granular, and then they were just able to see across certain regions where there were lots of deficiencies. Like I said, I don't know how they're using that or um, what that's going to translate into, but it is fascinating to see those trends. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we're just starting to get to the, the cusp of that, Samantha, because we've got a couple companies here on the eastern side. Again, when you're able to connect yield fields with yield and uh, some other descriptive layers, data layers, elevation, possibly, of course, soil types always out there, but uh, but some other things that are very uh, high resolution that gives us field by field. I, I think we can begin to explore some trends. Um, we'll see where that takes us, but I would think here in the near future, we would start to see some of those trends and how we can translate that into a farmer using that for their recommendations or tailoring recommendations to their farm. Um, so, We've been talking a lot about soil spatial variability um, and how that data might be useful for determining spatial, spatially variable applications. What are some other layers that you would like to see and, and you do like to see currently integrated with this soil spatial variability data to inform our spatially variable applications? Well, if we're talking a little pie in the sky, I would love, and, and I industry is is kind of driving some of this in terms of development boy it'd be nice to have uh, a couple things number one the ability to you know i guess we we can measure some of this with sensors but soil moisture variability um across the field being able to model that continuously over the growing season we really really cool data layer to to, to play into some of this uh, fertility management I think in time, if we can get, you know, um, maybe a couple more years of development work under our belts here, we may have some, you know, fertility type sensors that we can stick in the ground and complement that as well. And, you know, it's kind of like soil moisture sensing, you know, how many do you need to stick out in the field? Well, 
probably going to be quite a few if you really want to do it right, you know, mm-hmm. just from a statistical standpoint. But if we get fertility at some level, let's say nitrate and aspiration, even some kind of P level understanding, I will tell you, um, and soil moisture, boy, I'd love to be, if we could model those and be fairly um, confident over the growing season, I think that would really change our mind uh, coupled with weather and weather predictions, how we do fertility management uh, more in season. I'll say it that way from planning to in season type management. So just to, just to kind of piggyback on that, how would you like to inform where those sensors are placed in a field? I know you said there need to be a lot, but how, you know, what would be your choice about how those, those locations would be informed? Yeah. So we would, um, I think for us, we'd, we'd probably, again, you guys have a lot different soil and topography and just your field conditions are different in Nebraska. So when I say this, I'm speaking, I want to make everyone sure everyone understand I'm speaking in Ohio and what our conditions are. Um, you guys need to kind of address what your major variables are. I want to tell you that organic matter and measuring that and having a high resolution organic matter map is a, would be a big step for us. Next, uh, I mentioned this before, drainage, and basically it's water holding capacity and, and drainage and coupled together, is if we can take elevation and build in a, a fairly high resolution where water flows, where it's going to stand in certain conditions, having so elevation map and doing the derivatives of that and then doing our organic matter, we're going to have a lot of insight of where we need to replace sensors across the field because we're going to have highly eroded areas to essentially low organic matter potential you know in those areas to other areas that might be three plus percent organic matter so being able to use some of that tech uh, information and and it's fairly readily available in Ohio but that we could I think we could do a, a pretty effective job determining where we would place those sensors to inform some of the if we're trying to model that or use that information to make decisions on I think that would help us greatly those would be the data layers I'm thinking about of course yield love to put yield into that too but you know every year is a little different uh, in terms of weather patterns as well so we'd have to have quite a few years of yield data to, to put into that equation too but uh those would probably be my three here in ohio so when we're thinking about prescription still how can we start using or are people already doing this using these precision technologies to execute on-farm research to then inform prescriptions on individual fields what what are, what are some of the advantages and, and benefits that we may get out of that so my first comment is if you got precision technologies on, on your farm, I would, I would encourage grower to be doing some kind of on-farm research, answering their own questions. You know, uh, you guys have a great, you know, on-farm research network out there. You're learning things, not only for yourselves, but the, but the grower that's cooperating. And that's, there's just a lot of value. And when I think about prescription maps, you know, there's two things, right? There's, there's essentially, we'll, we'll gen- generalize this there's the zones are the zones right for the particular product that i'm trying to bury that's your first question and the second question is how do i determine in most cases what rate or source that i want to put in that zone that's profitable 
And so my thing is, is if we're not, if you're not doing some on-farm research to evaluate your zones and then evaluate your rate or product or source that's going to go into that zone, I question how reflective agronomically those prescription maps are and are they truly profitable for your operation? And I'm not sitting here pointing fingers and saying people are doing things wrong. There's a lot of room for all of us to improve, but for a grower, my question always is, is how do you know that's effectively providing a profit to you and you've delineated the, the variability of whatever you're trying to, to vary out there appropriately? So, and I think you guys do a great job and I, I you know, you can confirm with me. That's why we do a lot of this with our growers strip trials where we're not really varying whatever it is, the rate or source for the strip, but we're changing that between strips. And that gives us two ways. Number one, to evaluate our delineation of zones. Where should that be happening for that particular treatment? And then secondly, understanding within that zone, then we can go back and analyze and say, what was our optimum or what was our economic optimum that should have been applied in that year? And if I replicate that over, you know, I hate to say it like six years, if you're in a soybean corn rotation, but if I can, if I can bear with the grower, the grower can bear with this and we step Mm -hmm. through that all, I think they're going to be better off and what they're going to find in a case of seeding and maybe even some of this fertility at times, basically nitrogen, there's going to be some cases where, man, it's just a slam dunk. I should be doing it all the time in that field to an adjacent field. I either need to learn more or let's just stick with the fixed rate because it's profitable and it's easy for me to do on this field. But we find there's a lot of fields that were very tailored or because of history or because of the, the topography. A lot of times for us, it's drainage and topography. Right. It's elevation and drainage for us. If we can understand that and then we can understand how we should be uh, delineating and then adding and what's our profitable either seeding rate or fertility rate that goes into that zone. So but um, technology, precision egg technology and easily enables on farm research and growers need to be profitable. And if they're having people make prescriptions, that's great but they got to be evaluating some of this themselves. They should be asking their own questions on their farms and evaluating that to be able to, to understand what is profitable, what practices work, what doesn't work and be doing it out on a field by field basis in my view. And if they can get to that, there's a real value and a real learning experience for them as they get into all this. Okay. I make a comment and I can't remember if Dr. Luck was, I don't think he was involved with this project. We did a survey back in 2017. In fact, I think he was involved. And we surveyed only farmers that have been doing precision ag. So I'm talking about farmers that are all in on technology. They're real up. They're probably doing vertebrate seeding and to some level on vertebrate fertility. Do you know how many of them are doing on-farm research? I don't even really want to take a guess because I think I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> 84% of the respondents are doing some kind of on-farm research. And wow. I guess I use that as my testament that technology, I don't know if I, simplifies on-farm research, but it really enables growers to go out and test some of their hypotheses or interests or questions very simply. And with that, it becomes that learning experience that they really want to understand, you know, 
learn from and make changes or document, you know what, I am doing it right. Dr. Fulton further recommended that farmers and researchers consider machinery capability and availability when considering implementing variable rate applications. I think as growers, farmers, and even us as you know, research, I, I think we need to keep track of the equipment and, and processes that precision ag service providers are, are offering to us. I mean, it's one thing to be able to create a prescription map, and it's always, I, I, I separate out to execute that's a different strat, is a different, whole different component to the equation, right? I can create all kinds of maps, and I can even confirm that that map's as good as it's going to be scientifically, but in terms of executing it and, and having the ability to do that is a, is a whole different component of this. And so as growers, I just think you need to be thinking about um, both of those as, as, as two different pieces of, of your fertility management. And then thirdly, and come back to the, the on-farm, I, I still believe that on-farm experimentation really helps farmers fine-tune their fertility management what practices, what rates, how are things profitable within my system, that's a necessity to, to keep at it. And it only the real advantage of that is the acceleration of learning that goes on with that farmer when they're doing that type of research. So building on that, you kind of talked about where we are like at adoption and the technologies we do have. What machinery technologies do you think will be coming? Uh, what are people working on? And in particular, maybe with those dry spreaders and some mm -hmm. of the section control that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, um, we're going back to switch back to the, the spinner spreaders that, that we've been using. Um, we're, we're starting to see quite a bit of technology come in play. Um, some of this has kind of been around, but I think just having access and manu manufacturers provided is number one. Having dual or multiple bin dry fertilizer spreaders have been around for a while. But it's not until recent years that you could go to your retailer and actually look on the lot and actually see one on the lot. Uh, and so from a farmer perspective, what I like about that is I can put two prescriptions in, if not up to four, depending on what you're trying to, you make one pass across the field. And so that's been a, a big area where today, you know, think about planters. I mean, Jesus, we could put eight prescriptions in if we're controlling hybrid, seeding rate, fertility, um, and insecticide per se. I mean, you could do that today. My point on fertilizer spreaders is we can very effectively today with the software, making the prescriptions and the applicators do one pass, multiple products, uh, executing individual prescriptions because none of those prescriptions all going to be equivalent spatially in terms of where the highs and the lows are. So I think that's been a real advantage in, in real development over the last five, five years to see that come into play uh, first. Secondly, you're starting to see what I would call the European influence uh, on spinner spreaders. And so when I say that is number one, you're starting to see some new designs come into play. Um, that enables swath control, not full width swath control, but in a lot of times it could be 15, could be 12 sections, depending on the company. But I can actually, they can actually effectively with changing the position and the speed of the spinners on the on there, they can actually implement swath control like on your planner. So when I'm working in 
point rows or kind of abnormal shaped fields, it can shut off in sections and not just shutting off in like a 90 foot swath all at once and coming back on. It's actually broken down, take your 90 and divide it by 12 or 15. It could be shut off and come back on in sections like that. And we're, so we're seeing that uh, come in play here in the U.S. And so I'm starting to see though that technology starting to be available or being on a, at retailers when you when you stop in and look around and see what they have um, for equipment. So that's another thing that's really come is the improvement of section control and doing it by by zones now on these fertilizer spreaders. I think that's a big advantage to to not only them but also the growers in terms of more uniform application of product. So I'm not super well versed in, in terms of how this equipment works, um, but how difficult is it to assess the accuracy and distribution of what's applied uh, with these pieces of equipment? Because, you know, as data analysts, people who are trying to figure out what goes on, on with yield, we kind of want to see that as applied. So how accurate is that right now? Um, for fertilizer, basically, you're getting a pretty coarse resolution as applied map. And so, again, going back to um, even the machine behind me, I mean, if you had a Raven, basically you're going to get full width, whether that's 90, 120 full width coverage map, and you're just kind of getting an average right across that whole boom. So we're getting pretty coarse on our as applied maps. If, if I understand where you're heading with that and that where it comes back, um, there's a couple things. Number one, if we can get some sensors to put in place, especially on the granular side, to know exactly across the machine, the uniformity, that's going to give us the granularity that I think you're looking for to be able to overlay with your yeah. yield map and other data layers spatially. And, and it won't be until we do that, in my opinion, that we can look at response curves in a lot of cases. Because right. again, we can be off by 100 pounds sometime on a, on a coverage map in an area. On average across the whole thing, it's okay. I, it's, you know, 200 pounds per acre, but in some cases I could be off, you know, quite a bit, 50 to hundred pounds in some conditions. And so I might be using 200 pounds of perceived applied product. In reality, I might only have a hundred, you know, if it was some nitrogen or had some nitrogen in there, that's going to play a, a big significant treatment difference um, for you. So I think when we get some of these improved technologies to, to, that takes us to the next level for what I consider our as applied fertility maps, you're going to be able to do a much more improved analysis, both from the farmer perspective, but also for us that really interested in research and all with our ultimate goal is, can we ever get to a point of going suitably row by row or small area by small area to see some response and start to build those response curves that I think you were alluding to earlier, Samantha, we just can't do that today because of the, I don't want to say inaccurate. It's just, to, there's just not the resolution to do some of the analysis. Mm -hmm. um, I always frame up and you guys probably get tired of me. Talk, I always talk about, Today, today, and you're, I know you've got some growers. I know some of the growers in Nebraska that, that have all the technology. If you're doing a high-speed planner, regardless if you're on a high-speed or not, I would, I would argue with you, you almost know where every seed was planted in the field. That's pretty high resolution. Yeah. Regardless mm -hmm. if that's a 12-row, 24-, 36-plus row planner. Yeah. But we don't have anything – to be able to overlay across that, that relates to fertility to understand, well, I know what got planted, 
I can use a drone today to do my stand counts across that planter and know that, well, hey, I had a, maybe some issues or I didn't get a good enough emergence in this area, but I don't have anything on the fertility side to add into that analysis at, at a fairly high scale or high resolution way. Does that make sense on that? Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. It'll be interesting how we're going to get to that point where we do have high resolution. Yeah. <laughs> so. You mentioned earlier the two bins for dry fertilizer. Um, so kind of speaking along those lines, you know, are we going to get to the point where planters have two separate fertilizer products that can be applied at different rates for starter? Or we've talked about machines that have both anhydrous and liquid fertilizer and that they're applying at different rates. How are those being developed? Are we going to see more of that in the future? So, Yes. From a planter perspective, you can put uh, very simply a starter package on plus an infuro uh, and put stuff in infuro, whether that's fertility to if you want to do some of the, the other uh, biologicals is another piece that people are really interested in on, on that. So being able to, to do multiple fertility products, multiple sources, for sure, we can do that on planners today and, and do that pretty effectively. And, and I would state that if you want to spend the money, you could do that on a row by row basis very, very easily. But it's going to cost you money. That's probably the big hurdle on that front for that. On these other machines, uh, whether it's uh, dry or liquid and anhydrous or something like that, currently when we look at the the if you want to call them strip till, we call them zone till type implements where you're kind of doing a, you know, eight foot or eight inch by three inch depth kind of zone. And you're putting fertilizer in that in some fashion. Yes, you can, you can do that and, and do different sources all in one pass, no doubt about it. And so I'm just saying about three companies off the top of my head, they all have the capacity to, to run multiple sources on one implement and do that all in one pass. Um, but I think that's where we're at in some cases where research is going to have to determine the, the real value on some of that. Um, for us, placing nutrients below the soil uh, uh, subsurfacely is an environmental value in our neck of the woods. All, everyone says that if we get our nutrients, in particular nitrogen and phosphorus, in the soil, that greatly reduces the opportunity for that to leave uh, the field. And so that's kind of BMP. Uh, does that translate to profitability? I would argue yes, if it's done properly and we have some knowledge to supplement in there to understand how we need to be doing that. But maybe for others, it's more just to be able to kind of the right to farm, right? To, environmentally, it's keeping people off my back and, and I'm able to do what I want to do in some cases. So, but yes, we can do multiple products, uh, multiple sources on liquid anhydrous and, and dry today. It's becoming, the, the, the technology's there, I guess so I'm saying, and companies have the solutions. So what should farmers be thinking about right now? What would advice do you have the, to them for like planning out the next year? <laughs> well, um, I'm going to say if, if your growers are like ours, they probably already got quite a bit of fertilizer purchased and, and if not, quite a bit of their seed and, and seed packages that go on top of that purchased. Uh, but I, I think going into the first year, um, as it relates to fertility management, um, you know, I, I think making sure you review your plan. 
uh, or plans if you're doing verberate, making sure those are intact, they're sound, uh, sound agronomically as well. And um, I, I guess I would throw in that um, the challenge becomes is when, when can I execute those? And if, if I get a spring, uh, a late winter and early spring that's pretty wet, all of a sudden, you know, do I need to make adjustments to plan in terms of what I'm going to actually apply when? Um, and that's a big challenge. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've had to change some sources here in the last few years in Ohio. But my point in all that is, is as we go into January and February is, hey, I got a plan in play. I know what my costs are. Hopefully they've, they've you know, know what your costs are, but have a plan B in mind, especially given if, if you guys are like us with some of these spring rains, you know, if I've got to adjust things and, and maybe put a little bit more down on my planner or I got to do a little bit more in-season application, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as it's done with the right source and the timing. Uh, but uh, I think a, a plan A, what I'm going into the season thinking I want to do and have all that cost estimates laid out, but have a plan B back in my back pocket and, and be able to adjust uh, given some of the spring conditions that we're encountering these days. Thank you to Dr. John Fulton for joining us today on the Farm Bits podcast. As you heard, he has expansive knowledge in fertilizer and manure application technology, and also how to utilize data layers for informed nutrient and lime prescriptions. I think my favorite parts of this episode were Dr. Fulton's discussion of some of the new variable rate application technologies, uh, for example, on dry spreaders, and how we don't yet have a good way of measuring as applied rates at a high resolution. So we're thinking less than the 90 foot or 120 foot boom, especially with those machines. Uh, I also thought it was pretty cool to hear John say that we're at a point now where we could actually be applying four or more variable rate prescriptions at one time, particularly with the planter between variable rate seedings and nutrients and everything in between in response to that spatial variability out there in the field. Absolutely. And for me, I liked his comments on how with many of these technologies, they show an obvious benefit to the environment, but we also have to find a way to show the value to a producer. And on many cases, such as in lime, phosphorus, and potassium, the return to the producer's bottom line is already there in most situations. I also liked his point about having a backup plan for fertilizer application timing, but then being sure to adjust your source to that timing to have the best outcome. Absolutely. And having a plan B is never a bad idea. So. That wraps up our Soil Spatial Variability series. Uh, We'd like for you to tune in next week as we get started on another digital ag topic here on FarmBits. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the FarmBits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes. We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.